Hi, and welcome back to the show. I'm attorney James Betzold, and this is the Prima Law Podcast. This is a show where we interview real attorneys who have handled real cases and have made a real difference in the lives of their clients. We've recently been focusing on federal court litigation because we are immigration attorneys, I'm an immigration attorney, and we've been recognizing that over the last number of years there have been agency delays or unfavorable decisions that are unprecedented coming out of USCIS, DHS, and the Attorney General's office. So, it's become more important to be able to take these cases to federal court when possible. Our guest today is attorney Bradley Jenkins. He works for Clinic. You can find information about them at cliniclegal.org. That is the Catholic Legal Immigration Network, and they've, pro- they've been providing trainings, uh, literature, and uh, a lot of important materials for teaching immigration lawyers how to be better and even how to deal with uh, some of these federal court issues that arise. I can say personally, early on in my practice, the favorite book I had uh, in my arsenal for dealing with immigration court was titled Representing Immigration, uh, Representing Clients in Immigration Court, published by Clinic, and I'm eternally grateful for them uh, for their efforts in publishing that book because I used it every day, still use it to this day. Uh, it's a very helpful resource. As always, the show today is brought to you by Prima Fasci. So Prima Fasci is immigration software for immigration practitioners. We use it for filling auto, uh, for auto-filling our immigration forms, for doing our case management, so managing the tasks and all the different things we need to do, collecting documents, sending out checklists, managing questionnaires that need to go to the client that they can fill out online. And now our more and improved, our no, more and improved, our new, our new, new, our new and improved, well, it's not new, we've had it in the lab section for a while, but our, our severely improved package assembly feature, which now lets you assemble all of your forms, all of your addendums, all of your supplemental exhibits. You put that into one PDF, you can create a very customizable table of contents, index, it inserts in exhibit sheets automatically, it'll paginate everything, so you've got your Bates numbers on the bottom of each page, uh, and it puts, the pagination in your table of contents as well. Extremely useful when dealing with cases in EOIR or with USCIS. Find more information and a free trial at www.primafascinow.com. Also, prima.law. You can find us there as well. All right. Thanks for sticking with us and enjoy the show. All right. Welcome back to the show. This is the Prima Law Podcast, and we are joined today by attorney Bradley Jenkins, who is the federal litigation attorney for Clinic, the Catholic Legal Immigration Network. You can find more information about them at cliniclegal.org. Attorney Jenkins has been involved and lead counsel on a number of important cases uh, for immigration, including... That one case that maybe you've heard about already, LLMV, sorry, LMM v Cuccinelli, where a federal court agreed that Ken Cuccinelli, the acting principal person in charge, who's the most deputy supreme director of USCIS, <laughs> was actually um, illegally appointed. Uh, and so some of the regulations he had put in place or policy directives were nixed, which is kind of nice. And we'll 
we'll be excited to to hear more about that case. So Bradley, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And um, let's start with like your journey to becoming a lawyer. Uh, what what made you want to become a lawyer? I started my journey towards the legal profession uh, back in 2007 or so. I had the opportunity to be a Mennonite Voluntary Service volunteer uh, through the AmeriCorps program with the CARE Coalition here in DC, the Capital Area Immigrants Rights Coalition. Um, uh, when I was in college, I had done some you know, basic kinds of humanitarian work, but uh, hadn't really given much thought to the law. But then uh, at CARE Coalition, I was able to you know, do the kinds of research and writing that I've sort of always enjoyed doing as a professional uh, activity. Uh, but then if I did my job well, people got out of jail. Uh, people, you know, didn't get deported. And sort of the concrete consequences of uh, uh, doing your job well as a lawyer uh, really appealed to me. Uh, and so I did that for three years uh, before going to law school. I was a, a BIA accredited representative uh, actually for a couple of those years. And so um, actually tried a cat case in front of then Judge Schmidt before I even went to law school. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. That's good for the uh, red day, huh? <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, I was uh, I was hooked pretty pretty early and then and then went off to law school sort of for tell us a little more about the care program because um i i'm not very familiar with that sure uh care coalition is the nonprofit organization here in the dc area um that provides legal services to detained immigrants and removal proceedings both in virginia and maryland um uh, they serve both uh, adults at farmville and other uh detention adult detention facilities um, and then there are also um, some minors uh, who uh, are in ORR custody uh, that are served here. So, um, so we would go to the detention. As a legal system, I was going to the detention facilities, interviewing uh, uh, prospective clients, helping with the legal orientation program. Uh, and uh, they're an organization I, I continue to support to this day. Um, they they really helped me get started. So you were working with like all types of uh, EOIR, like immigration court cases, uh, that organization? Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, you know, to, in order to do detained work very frequently, you have to or to imagine the entire organization uh, from the ground up to cater to the obstacles uh, in doing detained work. So we, we were doing exclusively that um, for the... So you were able to handle things, uh, would you do like asylum, cancellation of removal, bond hearings, things like that? Exactly. Yeah. And I started just doing, you know, sort of, sort of just doing the intakes and pre presenting them uh, at our intake reviews. I sort of the, the, sometimes joked that the, the first practice at oral argument that I had was just persuading the legal director, right? Uh, that the case you should be taking. I believe in this case, and if if they told me that they didn't have relief, I went back and did more research and mm -hmm. uh, and uh, advocated for this person uh, based on you know try as I as I was trying to learn the law. So um, uh, you know, I have a lot of fond memories of 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 working at Care Coalition. So really, that's something you did after after your undergrad. 
Yeah, from uh, 2007 to 2010, I, I was there as a legal assistant. Wow. And so during now during your stint there, you became a BIA accredited representative as well? Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, that's really cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it, I'm, I'm fond of the recognition and accreditation program as well. I, uh, the, the accredited reps, uh, clinic affiliates actually comprise a lot of the, we, we help a lot of people become accredited representatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I have a lot of fondness for the, the sort of tenacity and uh, uh, sort of initiative of, of folks who want to, to, to serve the community in that way. Yeah, and it's like super important because like for a, for a private attorney to handle certain cases, I mean, there's, there's certain cases we just don't take. There's certain mm-hmm. cases where for most individuals or many individuals uh, who are on the docket, they can't afford it. Uh, mostly because they're detained right. and can't work and maybe don't have the support system outside. No, that's fantastic. So yeah, for anyone who doesn't know, when, you, when you're able to get into the jails or the detention centers and interview people, screen them for relief, you get really well-versed in um, all the nuts and bolts of the immigration court system. And you can sort of start to see, oh yeah, this is a good case. And, and this is a challenging case. And uh, the law is against us on this one. So that's that's fantastic that you're able to get all that experience uh, even before law school, before entering, uh, you know, before getting your law degree. Yeah. All right. So after working at CARE, you, uh, how was the transition to clinic? Like, how'd you find out about it? Oh, uh, CARE Coalition was actually one of the uh, uh, folks who, uh, helped with the BIA pro bono project, uh, which was a project uh, to find pro bono representation for vulnerable immigrants who had a pro se appeals pending with the Board of Immigration Appeals. Uh, and uh, at the time, and when I uh, managed the project, uh, one of the things we were able to do is have volunteer screeners go down uh, to the board uh, to screen cases and the legal director at Care Coalition was one of the screeners. Uh, and so I was sort of familiar with the BIA Pro Bono Project, had also heard of clinics training programs and uh, had been to some clinic trainings as a paralegal. Um, and so uh, as I was graduating from law school, I saw that the, they needed a new coordinator for the BIA Pro Bono Project and was just lucky enough to uh, get that job. It was a great uh, first job out of law school. I uh, I'm really grateful to clinic for, for that opportunity. And, uh, for, for five years, I, uh, uh, found pro bono attorneys for BIA appeals cases. We, uh, you know, stopped about 200 deportations while I was there. So, uh, wow. that's, that's impressive work. That's a heavy caseload too. Um, I mean, I wasn't doing them all myself um, by any means. I was mostly finding cases and mentoring pro bono attorneys who we then referred them to. But sure. uh, it was, and so the pro bonos are, are a really important uh, force multiplier uh, for for the limited resources we had uh, for the project. Uh, but yeah, we're really proud of of, of, of that project and its, its ability to, um, uh, it's it was, you know, now we more and more see remote representation models that use various forms of uh, televideo and all kinds of things to provide representation to folks from afar. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
the BIA pro bono project was really one of the first uh, to say, you know what, you're an attorney in Chicago or New York or, or wherever, why don't you rep represent someone on appeal in Harlingen or Eloy uh, or some of these other places where um, pro bono representation is doubly difficult to find. Mm. Uh, and so we were, we were able to uh, identify really good cases that way and, and get relief for some folks who deserved it. Awesome. So then uh, five years in that position as the, as the BIA pro bono project director? Manager, director, coordinator. Okay. And then what, what brought you from that to federal litigation attorney? Sure. Um, uh, when this administration uh, came into power, uh, we at Clinic recognized that um, litigation and also just removal defense type work was going to become all the more important. Uh, uh, sort of many uh, immigration legal services nonprofits focus on more routine kinds of applications on USCIS work. And, and so we set out an agenda, both that uh, we were going to try and build capacity for um, folks who wanted to, to provide more representation in the immigration course, because we knew that that's one of the places that we were going to have to fight this new deportation agenda, uh, this renewed deportation agenda, and we'll uh, also probably going to need to bring more federal litigation before before the Trump administration clinic was not uh, counsel of record in, in uh, federal cases uh, beyond sort of ad hoc petitions for review or other uh, cases maybe coming out via a pro bono project or something. But uh, we, starting with this administration, we've had a now an organized approach to um, bringing lawsuits in district court, uh, organizing around uh, federal court appeals in removal proceedings. And, and so uh, given my appellate experience, well, I was able to sort of transition into that role. Yeah, so, so it was a calculated, planned out recognition that, hey, this is gonna, we're gonna end up in federal court on these things. Right, and, and we have the, we have the sort of subject matter expertise, but not the litigation program yet. Mm -hmm. um, that need, and so litigation needs to be uh, a priority for clinic. And so they created uh, the federal litigation attorney position. And I'm, that, that's where I ended up wanting to be. Awesome. Are there other federal litigation attorneys there or? So I'm the, the only person who focused solely on federal litigation. I'm part of our Defending Vulnerable Populations Project yeah. uh, program. And um, and so we have uh, our our entire team engages in our federal litigation work. Uh, we have several folks, our managing attorney and our director, um, all do federal litigation work. But like I said, our defending vulnerable populations team also aims to reissue practice advisories on emerging uh, issues of of immigration law. We uh, we write the representing clients in removal proceedings manual that's published by Ayla. We, uh, yes. Hey, thank you for that book, <laughs> by the way. Yes. So back when I was starting, I think it was, uh, my first year of practice when the first version of that book came out. And I think I must've had it like the first month that it came out because mm. I saw it and I was like, oh, this is, 
this tells me exactly what I need to do. And I could walk into court without being terrified because mm -hmm. it was hard to find a mentor at the time. Yeah, and, and that's, uh, that's a lot of what our, our, right? our what? Now you're like in the third or fourth version of that book, if I'm not I mistaken. I think it's the fifth edition, yeah, or something. Yeah. Fourth or fifth. Um, and so uh, Clinics Defending Vulnerable Populations program is really, we're really trying to uh, help people who, for whom maybe representing vulnerable people and re removal proceedings sounds scary. Uh, hopefully clinic is providing some tools to make that a little bit less scary, uh, both by resources to attorneys, but also suing the government when they're trying to make things even more scary. Uh, so uh, uh, we're, we, we're trying to do both, both, both and. Approach. Yeah. And that's, you know, uh, especially with the federal court stuff, that's a trend that we saw. And unfortunately, a lot of times, you know, just the way the practice is set up or the way, you know, that our business models are set up, for, I mean, it used to be things would be dis decided in a somewhat reasonable amount of time. So even if it took another month or two months or three months, it was still, I mean, it was just waiting for the result was still going to be faster than filing a federal lawsuit about it. Right. Mm -hmm. And now that's not the case. Well, and it's ridiculous. With some types of cases, it's just, it, they, they drag their feet and it takes forever. And with other types of cases, at least since the shutdown, We've seen people get their DACA's approved, like the DACA renewals approved in 14 days. Wow. And like, it's not just our firm, it's other people. It's like been mm -hmm. really quick. And uh, I-130, I just, you know, did a consult with someone yesterday. We were reviewing their file. We had fed, filed it in February and like a couple weeks ago, it was approved. We got the approval notice on I-130, which we had been telling people, hey, this could take like six months to a year because of processing times and whatnot. So... There's really no reason that somebody waiting on a on a U visa waitlist decision should have to wait 54 months if they can do all these other things so quickly right now, you know. And and it's when you start seeing those 54 month waiting periods, it's like okay, we really need to dig in. We need to start taking federal cases. We need to figure out you know the cases and how we do it, how we manage it, how it fits into the business model everything because it's just the days of the attorneys where they could sit back and say, well, you know, Ryan, we just got to wait, just got to wait, just got to wait. And you know, there's, I'm tired of telling people to wait, you know? And I would say, yeah. So the, the mandamus style, uh, federal litigation, uh, I really encourage folks, uh, you know, if you've never been in federal court before and it sounds like this whole big new scary thing, to think mandamus is often a, a place where it's a little less big and scary. An unreasonable delay is an unreasonable delay once you get to three, four, five years. Um, there's lots. It's easier to find samples that look like the kinds of problems that uh, that you're facing. Uh, it's a nice way to sort of learn the nuts and bolts kind of stuff. That sometimes the the scary part of federal court is not so much the I'm bringing a big splashy case challenging. Ken Cuccinelli's uh, <laughs> uh, appointment as the USCIS acting director, uh, but I'm I want to challenge this this delay in this case. But it still seems scary to figure out service of process and to to get admitted in your district court. And there's these other sort of sort of more nuts and bolts things. And uh, I think the second case I ever filed was a mandamus case, right? Yeah. Just because I was still learning, and that's and it was a it was a nice it, more reasonable 
uh, chunk to bite off uh, in terms of learn the rhythms of federal court. Yeah. So walk us through the, because you mentioned the big flashy case, LMFB <laughs> Cuccinelli, which when it came out, I was so happy. <laughs> it was so nice to see that just walk us through it. So tell, tell us how this case began. Tell us about, uh, for example, like the plaintiff, what was happening in the case? Sure. So um, the actual policy, if we're talking about the plaintiffs, um, that was being challenged is that um, USCIS, through its purported acting director, uh, signed up on a bunch of policies relating to the credible fear process. Uh, uh, prior to this policy change, you had 48 or 72 hours uh, after you were detained uh, to sort of rest and get your head together uh, before uh, there was a mandatory waiting period before you had your actual credible interview, which determined the entire future of your asylum case. Uh, this new policy decreased that 48 or 72 hour waiting period to 24 hours. Um, they also um, uh, changed their policy continuances uh, from basically a good cause policy to the sort of called it the, you literally have to be in the hospital or you're not getting a continuance policy. It, it, was, it was no longer good cause to continue your credible fear interview, but I've only been in this facility for 24 hours and I'm looking for an attorney, right? Two more going forward, right? So that they, they really tightened the language around uh, requests to um, reschedule. Uh, and so we, thought and continue to think that those po those policies themselves were substantively unlawful, but they were also promulgated by uh, Mr. Ken Cuccinelli, who was unlawfully appointed as the acting director of USCIS. Basically what happened, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, just let me ask, because as I was reviewing the case and uh, outcome and everything, it, you know, I was wondering, and especially, you know, like I told you before, I'm listening to uh, John Bolton's book, right? The Room Where It Happened. And he talks about immigration policy and sort of the chaos in the administration, people leaving, people, you know, sniping at each other, trying to get other people kicked out, putting those seeds in the presidency or trying to get him to be dissatisfied with others. And it occurred to me, like, who was paying attention to the uh, appointment procedure for Ken Cuccinelli? How did that? How did that show up on your radar? Because for me, I hear news. Yeah, so and so's appointed as okay. It's like whatever. The government's far away. It's over there. How did that show up on your guys' radar? Um, I, a couple of things. I think. I mean, part of it was just this sort of repeated. Right. We kept hearing acting so and so and acting so and so and acting so and so. And so it just sort of begs the question. Like we we were starting to see, and so beyond just the unlawfulness of it it really seemed to be an abuse of the appointments process, right? We'd all learned in law school about the appointments clause and how officers of the United States need to be um, uh, nominated and confirmed by the Senate. And more and more, we, we've sort of had permanent government by acting officials under this administration. And Trump was even saying things like, I like actings in response to questions about why these these officials weren't going to be going through um, the uh, advice and consent process. And so um, 
we partnered in that case with Democracy Forward, who were really great experts on the Federal Vacancies Reform Act, which by which Congress allows acting officials to exercise the functions and duties of offices of the United States, but it does regulate the circumstances under which officials can act. Um, and so ultimately the LMM case, its holding is that um, Ken Cuccinelli's attempt to promulgate policy without being validly appointed as the acting director of USCIS um, violated the Federal Vacancies Reform Act. Uh, basically, the idea of the Federal Vacancies Reform Act is that when somebody leaves a post, their first assistant, their immediate subordinate, becomes the acting director. And that's exactly what happened when Lee Cisna resigned. Uh, Mark Kumans, the deputy director of USCIS, became the acting director of USCIS. Uh, and then days later, uh, acting secretary of Homeland Security uh, created a position that was scheduled to disappear once uh, once there was a Senate-confirmed director um, uh, and then hired Mr. Cuccinelli to fill that principal deputy director of the USCIS position. Long story short, I think the district court got it right when it noted, noted uh, the, only per the person who's the automatic acting director is the first assistant, and Mr. Cuccinelli was never designed to be an assistant to anybody. Um, and so uh, that's that's the sort of short version of why it violated the law is he wasn't yeah. he was being hired as the acting, not hired as the assistant, the first assistant. Yeah. Uh, so they made a special position for him. Didn't exist before. Is scheduled exactly. to go away when somebody else gets appointed. Uh, I mean, essentially, what they're doing is they're usurping the the. Uh, uh, what's it? Not the not the pecking order. Not it's the hierarchy. I guess the yeah. hierarchy. That's not a popular word. Uh, the succession. The they, line of succession. Yes, they <laughs> they manipulated the uh, the the succession order, um, designation of succession uh, in order to in order to install him in a way that was a clear end run around uh, around the uh, way in which Congress had intended for. Uh, yeah, and it's not like there was any legal authority that allowed them to just create this and allowed them to go in and do that. I really like where um, the court also concludes that Cuccinelli was not lawfully appointed to serve as the acting director of USCIS, and that accordingly, the reduced time to consult and prohibition on extensions directive must be set aside as ultra vires under the FVRA and the APA. That's got to be this music to your ears, right? Oh, yeah, I remember... <laughs> Uh, in federal court, we get notices of docket activity in the email, and it was a Sunday morning, actually, when the decision came down. Oh, really? Uh, uh, yeah, and so I, I remember checking my email on a whim, and, and uh, it was a, uh, uh, I think Judge Moss did a really great job of, uh, of explaining why, why uh, the government had broken the law. So were these the only policy directives that Ken Cuccinelli had put forward? No. Uh, and, there, we, and we've seen other folks be pu putting FVRA claims into, into other cases. We'll see how that um, – uh, 
there was, you know, there was a pretty uh, extended period of time during which um, he was the acting director. And, and obviously he was acting as if he were the acting director, I should say. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I think it's certainly worth scrutiny, uh, uh, any of the actions he took uh, during that period. Yeah. And that's the, that's the da danger of playing fast and loose with the FVRA, right? Is um, it, it's the FVRA, Congress get, gave pretty strong medicine uh, for, for violations. Um, and uh, Congress has its constitutional role to play in confirming Hopefully. So the FVRA contains the, the, contains the medicine in there. It contains the remedy. Right. The, the validation FVRA right? expressly provides that and uh, the actions of a person that don't comply, who's, who's in, uh, hiring doesn't comply with the FVRA, shall have no force or effect. Right. So just as if, you know, you or I could say, could say on this podcast that it is USCIS policy that everybody gets asylum. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's that it doesn't become the, the policy of the United States because we're not validly appointed to be that decision maker. And so that's what Congress basically said in the FERA is you're no better than a man on the street if you're not imbued by the power of the government by, by this law. So he's still, I mean, I'm just, I just looked it up right now. His official title is senior official performing the duties of the director, USCIS or United States or United States Citizenship and Immigration Services director vacant. <laughs> so he's still there. Um, is there any, is there any other remedy for his like straight up removal from the position or is it just everything he does we can challenge based on the FVRA now? Um, right, like I, he still may well be a validly hired government, generalized government employee or advisor to the secretary. Um, that that may be more difficult to challenge. But if to the extent that someone uh, whose appointment who is an officer of the United States and is exercising the powers of, of an office um, uh, that needed to have gone through no. Uh, advice and consent, that's, that's when there's a problem. Hmm. Okay. Well, definitely a great case. I think that gives some options to everyone because he's still there. He still looks like he's still enacting policy. And I'd be surprised if it were somehow policy that's good for immigrants or lawyers in that matter. Okay. Well, let's move on to another one of your cases. Um, Let's let's go back to matter of LEA. That's right. So when we when we were uh, when I have cited this case in the past and used it in court to try and convince the immigration judge that yes, this is a valid uh, particular social group in an asylum case, this was one of the cases that we would use, saying, "Look, family, family is the quintessential social group." But then uh, it was. Attorney General Barr, was it him who stepped in? Uh, I was act, acting Attorney General Whitaker and then Barr who designed the AG version of Matter of LEA last year. Um, 
And when uh, Attorney General Whitaker issued that notice saying, we're going to take a look at the circumstances under which families are particular social groups, mm -hmm. um, uh, that's when uh, Clinic had appeared as an amicus in the prior BIA case, but uh, uh, Clinic then partnered with um, Mr. LEA's former, uh, not former, but uh, previously hired uh, uh, immigration attorney and, and uh, helped to write, helped to represent Mr. LEA before the attorney general. And we, we continue to represent him now. That case was actually remanded to the immigration judge. Um, uh, and so, uh, yeah, we're preparing now for an individual hearing. Okay. So for those... For those who are listening who aren't maybe familiar with how a, how badly an immigration court case can go, you can win, <laughs> and then the government can appeal, and you can win that. I don't remember, I don't think that's what happened in this case, but you could. But then the attorney general sitting in his office in Washington D.C. can say, "You know what? I just I don't like it. I don't like it. I'm going to refer it to myself. I'm going to uh, I'll request people to send briefs to me." However, under this administration, it seems like it's, yeah, I'm going to request that they can submit briefs if they want, but I've got my mind made up. And then they issue a decision that is, it, it can be completely contrary to what the immigration judge decided and what the BIA decided. So. Or what 10 courts of appeals have decided. Oh, what courts of appeals have said. Okay. So that was the question I had. I wasn't certain on. So the attorney general, can he refer, like Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals takes a case, they decided. Can he refer that case to himself? Uh, it, it may have needed to be remanded or, I mean, it, that, that, the answer to that is maybe, although I don't think that that's been what's tried. I was, I was more making a glib comment that among the courts of, of appeals, uh, there has been a, a broad and longstanding consensus that families are particular social groups. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, that that consensus was sort of the the baby that was thrown out with the bathwater and um, the attorney general's 2019 LEA decision. Yeah, and I guess you you quoted the the Ninth Circuit that the family is the quintessential particular social group, and you know that that idea was given pretty short shrift. We think. Yeah. Yeah, well, like you're saying, I think what could happen is you could have a case that goes to like the Circuit Court of Appeals, gets remanded back to the immigration judge, then it goes up to the BIA, and then still anytime after that, the attorney general can step in, right? There's actually a case now that he's certified to himself, it appears, many, many years after the fact, uh, where he's actually even expressly raising the question, like, how long is too long? Uh, for me to certify an old case to myself, which it's you can see it's a particularly pernicious practice to sort of go fishing for some case back that you want to uh, make a point out of um, and uh, use that as the vehicle to change policy. So, oh, yeah, you uh, could have someone who's a resident or a citizen already. If you can go back as far as you want, they may have citizenship. Attorney General recertifies a case himself and tries to pull it all away. We haven't seen that yet, and I think that would pose special problems. <laughs> oh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, well, but yeah, maybe we, we should edit this we, part out so nobody gets any clever ideas. 
Yeah, we've been we've been seeing, uh, you know, bottom line is I think we've been seeing uh, an increased willingness to use the attorney general uh, certification process to affect uh, immigration policy. Um, and we're just now seeing, I think, the courts of appeals um, responding to that. I think just today or maybe yesterday, um, the Seventh Circuit uh, came down uh, and followed the Fourth Circuit in rejecting Attorney General Sessions' decision, uh, matter of Castro Tomb, which was the um, decision by which Sessions and one uh, attempt, attempted to take away the practice of administrative closure um, in the immigration courts as a as a doc management tool, um, and so uh, you know because of the individualized nature of judicial review and removal proceedings, uh, it takes a little while for these issues to filter through to the courts. Um, but uh, I do think we're starting to see uh, the. Uh, some judicial pushback against against this practice of uh, a, attorney general certifying a case to himself with sort of uh, certain ideas in mind. Rewrite the whole system of law and tradition and stability that even as practitioners we can say, oh, yeah, I'm going to meet with you. Yeah, your case, here's what it is. It looks pretty good because this is the law and all of a sudden the next day it changes. It's highly inefficient, especially especially when a lot of these immigration court hearings are years apart. And so this is actually brings up a good point that I, I want to get out into the, the gospel of the immigration bar is that we've seen change after change after enormous change uh, in immigration policy affected by the executive branch over the past several years. And if... Uh, the DACA case means nothing else, right? It was a reaffirmation by the Supreme Court of the idea that when the executive branch changes its policy, it has to take into account the reliance interests of people who have already relied on existing policy, right? So I want to encourage all of the folks out there to be presenting arguments for their long pending cases that all of a sudden got the rug pulled out from under them. So in addition to saying that the new policy is wrong, saying that the new policy cannot be retroactively applied to my client because my client is in a position where he, he or she relied on some former version of the policy um, now to their detriment. Um, and that the new policy didn't account for my client's reliance interests, so it can't be applied. So he, uh, I think study of anti-retroactivity principles of administrative law um, are increasingly relevant in the immigration practitioner tool belt. Wow. If I can get sort of nerdy about it. That is an excellent point because it happens, it happens all the time. Um, yeah. The, the, the examples are too numerous to, to, to state. And I'll, I'll even say, right, just because it's not in the decision doesn't mean it's not being argued. I, I think one of my frustrations on my first reading of matter about the attorney general's decision matter of LEA is we set up a big retroactivity argument, right? We argued it very explicitly. We just it's, it's an entire argument that the agency actually ignored in, in that case. And so, um, I, but I think it's an argument that especially if the case is on a trajectory to eventually make it into federal court in some way, 
it's uh it's a decision i think the judiciary it's a principle that i think the judiciary is taking quite seriously yeah that's that's well that's well pointed out yeah like we're saying there's someone can have a case i mean we've had cases that have gone on for nine years and you know, whenever there's a government shutdown, maybe they had their individual hearing scheduled for then, it gets reshuffled and they go right next to a master some months in the future, and then they get rescheduled for an individual years into the future then again. So, yeah, and sometimes, I mean, it's pretty rare now in the last few years that the law changes to their favor. Right. Um, so it can really, it can really pull, like you said, pull the rug out from under your client who is thinking, oh, I can do this. I can get an administrative closure. I can file I-601A, and then I can go do consular processing. We're now, exactly. nope, no more administrative closure. Take a deportation order now. Right, and one of the arguments in that, in that scenario in particular would be first that Castro Tomb was wrongly decided as stated by the Fourth and Seventh Circuits. But that, that argument, because of principles of agency precedent is going to be rejected, right it's a it's a ag decision i'm an ij he's my boss i've got to follow it but there's at least some chance that i think uh the unaddressed issue of retroactivity could be a, you could you could actually argue that to an ij i think um validly you, you'd have to concede that the merits argument against castro tomb is foreclosed by agency precedent we're asserting it here only to go to my circuit um but you could say and there was actually, I can't remember the name of the case off the top of my head, but there's a um, a recent BIA case where the BIA actually says it should be, the agency should be doing retroactivity analysis. It mm -hmm. said, did the retroactivity analysis and you still lose in the case. But, uh, um, so yeah, it's, it's a, uh, it's a tool for the, for the, for the tool belt when you're, when you had a plan and new policy uh, is what's ruining it. So matter of LEA right now, because I'm looking at the, of, of course, Clinic Public's a great practice advisory on matter of LEA, uh, dated August 2, 2019. What's the status of LEA right now? Uh, we're still pending an individual hearing, a trial on <laughs> the immigration court. We um, uh, both have a, a can't case to present, um, and we believe that um, if the attorney general is serious about the case-by-case -case analysis that has to be uh, done in every case regarding whether a particular family is a particular social group, uh, that, that we should be given that opportunity as well, and we intend to submit evidence in, in that regard. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Let's go on to another another one of your accomplishments there's so many of them i mean i have like case after case here and it's one actually from the circuit where i practice where'd it go trujillo diaz v jefferson beauregard sessions the third not the second that was somebody else All right. Uh, okay, I think I'm going to have to edit this out because I can't remember right now <laughs> what all this one stood for. <laughs> but I remember I've had to use it. Uh, is this another family membership one? 
This is motion to reopen. Motion to reopen. Right. 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 Okay. So, uh, so in the practice uh, in immigration court practice, after someone takes a, or is ordered removed, has a removal order outstanding against them, there's certain circumstances where the government can well, or typically it's a petitioner, the respondent will file a motion to reopen the case, which effectively gets rid of the removal order. Right, does away with it because they reopen it. They're going to relit. You're going to relitigate it based typically on some new form of relief that's available to the respondent um, that wasn't available before for some reason. Am I right with that so far? Right. The the standard for a motion to reopen is that you're presenting evidence that was previously unavailable and um, that is material to the claim. So the idea being, it wasn't it, it didn't exist. It wasn't available before. So now it's only fair to let you come back to move to reopen the case, so we can consider it like it should be considered. Exactly. Okay. And, so, and, I, and I do want to uh, be clear on this one. I I helped some with with this this case, and certainly our advocacy department at clinic also helped. Um, this was a case in which uh, Governor Kasich uh, even uh, advocated for. Ice not to remove uh, the mother in this family, um, and uh, the the good folks at uh, Advocates for Basic Legal Equality, uh, ABLE uh, in Ohio, were the ones who actually argued uh, Mari Bell's case. But uh, through our program with our affiliated organizations, we were able to provide some support uh, and mentoring for uh, the federal court part of it. Um, and yeah, it's now an important precedent. Uh, not only did Mari Bell's case get reopened, uh, but it's now an important precedent. It's one thing to sort of remember about motions to reopen is that they also don't usually happen with a hearing, right? You file a motion, you, you reduce what the testimony is going to be to an affidavit or a declaration and you say, here's my previously unavailable and material evidence. Please decide my motion. And there's not a hearing to test credibility, et cetera. Um, and so the rule that most courts have, have come up with is if you're not going to have a hearing to test credibility, you have to accept what's in that declaration is true. And that's the error that the, the sixth circuit found is that she submitted evidence, which the agency was sort of bound in this procedural posture to accept as true. And it just, and it didn't accept it as true. It made it made factual findings that were contrary to the presumptively at this stage, credible evidence. And so that's how the case was eventually reopened, right? The motion to reopen stage is just about whether this evidence matters, not the, the IJ later in reopened proceedings is gonna have to determine whether it's credible, et cetera, so. Yeah, so the story, because I remember it now, because I did read this in preparation for, for today, <laughs> and I've read the case before. It's just sometimes um, you read these cases and what happened to the individual in the case is like so traumatic, but there's multiple cases that are similarly situated. So exactly. they, sometimes they can blend together, at least for me. And if I'm not inappropriately blending it together, was I believe, Okay, so this isn't the case. I, this is a different. There's a different case where they were. She was like actually removed from the U.S. Right? But that's not this. Uh, she this this case. Yeah, she was uh, re removed from the from the United States. She I, she was able to come back. 
Right. Yeah. Okay. So yep, there it is. All right. So let's 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 set up the story a little bit. And you correct me, jump in if I'm wrong at, at any part here. Um, for some reason, I don't know why, she had uh, a removal hearing and either it was ordered removed. I don't know if it was in, in absentia, so with her presence, or if it was after a hearing or something like that. But essentially what happened is some years later, uh, and during this time, she's on a order supervision, right, with ICE? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's not like she's- This, this is the age of prosecutorial discretion. <laughs> Okay, so prosecutorial discretion. There we go. Not a bad situation, actually. And then, um, so she files this motion to reopen saying, hey, um, there's some severe kidnapping of my family members and the gang who kidnapped them, the cartel who's kidnapped them, are looking for me. And they told my family member, we're going to do bad things to you and your family if we can't get a hold of so-and-so and so-and-so -and -so in your family, right? Your, your kids, right? Because they knew that they had come to the U.S. or something like that. And it's uh, this has happened multiple times with gangs, especially from Mexico and the Northern Triangle, where there's, there's these threats that happen, and it's all very closely related uh, to just being a family member, right? The, the, the gang wouldn't have even known about this other person had it not been for a family relationship. And so they submitted, uh, she submitted evidence, including, I think it was an affidavit, affidavits, right? That's typically what you do. Right. And both, both her testimony about the changed country conditions were yeah. sort of distilled down to a declaration. Uh, but uh, the good folks at ABLE were also able to get an expert, uh, which played prominently in the circuit court's de uh, decision, um, sort of saying why, sort of putting in context why, um, these threats meant that she had a she had valid asylum and cat claims. Um, and it was factual findings that the BIA relied on uh, and and deciding the motion that were sort of contrary to those expert findings um, that was the ultimate basis for the Sixth Circuit to intervene, that the Sixth Circuit sort of said, you can't come to that conclusion and accept as true what the expert is saying. And on a motion to reopen, you accept as true the new evidence. And so, and then, I mean, the, the ultimate rationale is about that simple. Um, uh, and so that's, uh, so the Sixth Circuit sort of joining this, you accept the evidence as true principle um, in sort of a appellate procedure way. But yeah, uh, um, Mr. Dio is, is, is uh, obviously very sympathetic person whose life was affected as well yeah and there's a part in the the part in the decision here where i mean so, sometimes stuff that comes out of the bia or uh it's just it, it's over and over in in multiple cases the same wording even uh the bia determined that trujillo diaz has changed country conditions evidence quote does not support her contention that she would specifically be targeted due to her family relationship when it clearly does, it clearly states that, it clearly alleges that. And there was another part, I don't know if I'm going to find it right now, but it's sort of like where the, BB, the BIA was just sort of poo-pooing the evidence. Like, oh, yes, it's just this purported affidavit that alleges these things. Where, like you're saying, their job is to accept that as true. And then if they need to hold a hearing to figure out if it really is true or whatnot, then, you know, take it from there. 
um, yeah, it's a, they called it a generalized fear of harm. But when there's a gang that's as vicious and violent and deadly to your family already, and they're like, we want so-and-so, that's not generalized. That's yeah. really flipping specific. Generalized is, well, I don't want to go to downtown or I don't want to go to the suburbs of Chicago because it's violent there. That's generalized. Like there's no specific threat against you. Yeah, we've it's it's difficult to often read agency decisions. That also uh, another another favorite is no evidence. Right? It's not that it's not that they engage with the evidence and find it lacking. They say there's no evidence that yada yada yada, um, and that's a frustrating agency decision to read because there's usually very obviously evidence that um, and. You know, as a, a pellet uh, practitioner point, that those those are that's a frustration that it actually sounds in a claim. That's an appellate uh, claim that the agency said there was no evidence that here's the evidence that uh, X, right? Uh, and so, if, if they're literally saying no evidence, then uh, an initial response or an instinct should be uh, to to uh, show how. If they really think that there's no evidence, that means they weren't giving reasoned consideration to the record, right? So, um, that's and this and this was even one of those decisions—not uh, the decisions, one of the cases where <clears throat> uh, they had it they had it laid out in the, or maybe I was reading a summary of it somewhere. But essentially, she files um, the motion to reopen. Of course, ICE gets a copy of it. It's just what happens. And then next thing you know, ICE is coming to schedule her for removal, where for, it appears, years, she had been on this, I guess, administrative closure. And now all of a sudden, she's a priority for removal because she had the, the gall to file a motion to reopen and try and actually win her case after these horrific things were going on. And I don't remember the exact order that that went in. So I, I, I don't know if it was. It became clear that enforcement was on the horizon, and uh, which which order that happened in. But certainly, I mean, this was a case where, like I said, the governor of Ohio was saying that uh, this is not a priority. This oughtn't to be a priority for removal. Yeah, here from the, the judge's decision, I found it. The Sixth Circuit that ended up being granted, right? Yeah. Uh, and it was also this was before Hamama. Uh, and some of the other cases that looked at uh, habeas relief and stays, uh, but it was a, uh, a difficulty that there's sort of a gap that we're still trying to uh, find ways to litigate um, in which the board hadn't ruled on our stay motion or had denied the stay motion, but we couldn't get review of the stay but it had not ruled on the merits of the motion to reopen. And so there was this gap where we couldn't get a judicial stay. Um, but at the same time, uh, the BIA was sort of, we couldn't get judicial re review of the merits. And so uh, some folks have filed habeas petitions in that situation. We need to also be thinking about filing separate uh, actions in the courts of appeals. Um, uh, but there's a gap there that 
take take some care to try to navigate well sort of this question of how do you deal with uh, stay practice in motions to reopen otherwise no final order that we can get federal court jurisdiction over um, I'm increasingly thinking that we should just argue that file a petition for review of the denial of a stay um, and see if that if we can make that work but um, yeah, this was this was the case I was thinking where two days after she filed her motions, ICE apprehended her outside of her home, scheduled her for removal on April 11th, and on April wait, wait, scheduled for removal, uh, April 10th, the BIA denied her stay of removal, but took no action on her motion to reopen. It seems like there's bad faith through all of that. So then she filed a petition for review of the denial of the stay. And an emergency motion to stay removal, this court denied her motion to stay and dismissed the petition for review on April 11th, so the next day. And then eight days later, she's removed from the country. Right. We, I think we need to revisit that second part where if uh, I, you know, I, I think there's a good argument that if the appellate courts have jurisdiction over the motion, the ultimately denied motion to reopen, uh, a denial of a motion for stay is similar final agency action that is uh, sufficiently related to the final order of removal to permit jurisdiction. Or what we hadn't learned yet is, um, uh, but maybe complicated now by Thurgisium, uh, is that uh, some some people have had success in habeas obtaining judicial mm. case yeah. Uh, yeah. In, in those circumstances. Yeah, because it seems like with habeas, even the like the judge has a little bit of discretion, at least to get a delay, to right. delay things just long enough for the other court to issue a better decision or a, a decision at all. Yeah, for the board to ultimately actually decide the case. Yeah. All right. Well, quite an exciting uh, amount of cases you've been you've been able to work on and push forward and you know advance the cause of like true justice. I mean, a lot of times, I mean, it's fighting a bureaucracy. How do you do that? Okay, let me ask you this. How, how do you deal with fighting a bureaucracy every single day? How do you manage that? Oh, I mean, I'm lucky enough that, you know, part of my tool belt, I guess, is uh, I get too frustrated with the bureaucracy. I know how to sue them. Um, <laughs> so... Um, but, uh, the, yeah, it is, I think my early sort of bringing it full circle, I think my early education in immigration law as a paralegal was sort of learning how to navigate the bureaucracy in the first instance. Um, and, uh, sort of lay that foundation for, I've done everything that a person can be expected to do in good faith. Um, uh, and I think that really sort of helps as a litigator to have that instinct to first lay, lay a foundation of your own good faith efforts mm -hmm. uh, as a way of getting a court to take seriously your uh, uh, demand for intervention, right? Mm -hmm. um, so. Well, I want to thank you for joining us today. Um, and we look forward 
to all of the are there any are there any new practice guides coming out soon that you can tell us about oh what's coming out i i don't do the practice guides as much so i'm just trying to think there's constantly practice guides coming out though yeah it's great so for anyone out there <laughs> cliniclegal.org right you can go there you yeah. can donate monthly right to help keep things moving it's funny so it's a non-profit organization so that's right tax deductible donate, that's right right unless yeah. the law changes and, they <laughs> and then we would argue retroactivity about exactly <laughs> you would have to right <laughs> uh well you would be you would be the one to do it that's for sure um yeah so please everyone check out clinic their publications are there other publications that uh that clinic has through ala or other other places um so in addition to the representing clients and removal proceedings book uh we're lucky enough to have Charles Wheeler, who's the expert on the Child Status Protection Act and affidavits of support, et cetera. And there's some, some ALA publications along along those lines. But um, we, we're also, there's an entire section of our website dedicated to our latest resources. And I'll tell you what, I, I, I look at that website pretty frequently and there's very, it's, it's a rare week when that entire list of new resources hasn't completely turned over. Um, because we're we're just constantly trying to uh, help keep folks on the on the cutting edge of, of what's happening in the immigration space. And for some, for an attorney out there who's maybe saying, you know what, I want to be part of this pro bono project. I want to be able to, you know, represent clients in Harlingen, even though I'm up here in Minnesota or wherever. What's the best way for them to get into contact with clinic? Uh, the BIA Pro Bono Project has a landing page on our website. Uh, just either search for BIA Pro Bono Project or sort of click through the Defending Vulnerable Populations parts of our website. Uh, you should be able to get uh, pretty easily in contact with my colleague, Rachel Nagar, uh, who's, uh, who manages that project now. All right. Well, again, Attorney Jenkins, thank you so much for your time today. I've learned a lot, and I'm sure other people listening are you know, this has been sort of our push over the last, well, for the first like 10 episodes here is like talking about federal court, getting immigration attorneys more confident with the idea of going to federal court. And here, I mean, with the work that you've done, we have a prime example of why it's so important. Um, the federal courts, I love the LNN, the Cuccinelli case, right? They can say, that guy, he was illegally placed. Everything he does is void. <laughs> Love it. All right. Thanks again. Have a great one. You too. It's been